we are, of course, um, just sort of bouncing our way through different, pas- different books of the Bible. And we happen to be uh, today in the book of Second Timothy. Uh, we'll continue just um, coming up will be, of course, um, Titus and Philemon. And then we're going to meet, go into the book of Hebrews after that. And we'll be working through that book uh, one um, from beginning to end in, in a more uh, conventional manner. But for today, we are moving into Second Timothy. And I just, uh, as I was looking at, at Timothy and, and uh, the background of it and everything that was going on in Paul's life at the time, uh, <clears throat> it sort of comes to the question of, of what's life like for you at the moment? You know, what is it that really grates you? Well, what is it that's, that's difficult? What, what is it that you feel you're getting a raw deal on? Uh, is, is, are things unfair? Are you saying, hey, that's not fair that I'm treated this way or that way? Or, hey, you know, it's, it's not fair that, that um, you, you know, we've got to pay so much for eggs or whatever the case might be. You know, I mean, where, what is the difficulty that you're facing today? Because sometimes we, we need to get things into perspective. And, and so I just want to start by a little bit of background uh, with what was going on in Paul's life. And so there's um, <clears throat> these three letters of Paul's, First, um, Second Timothy and Titus, of course, are collectively known as the pastoral letters uh, for the reason, of course, that uh, they were writ- written to, to guys who were in the role of, of leading a fellowship uh, within that um, role of, of pastor, Timothy and Titus. Now, first Timothy and Titus were believed to have been written uh, between Paul's first and, and second uh, imprisonment. Uh, second Tim- Timothy was written during his, his second um, imprisonment, which was somewhere around 67 uh, or, or maybe moving into 68 AD. Now, if you read the book of Acts, it closes with Paul, who's in prison in Rome, and that was around about the year of 63 AD. Uh, he was acquitted, and he was released after that. You know, after a few years, though, he was rearrested and taken back to Rome, uh, where he was executed around about the year of 68. But in the year of 64, 64 AD, not 1964, you know what happened in Rome was the Great Fire. You would have run across that in, uh, in, in history lessons. The Great Fire of Rome, which destroyed much of the city. Now, the people suspected that Nero was the, the, uh, the emperor. Nero was, was the culprit. Uh, and and uh, to have purposely started the, the city in order to sort of clear some space because he wanted to rebuild the city in a, in a grand scale. and So he had to get rid of these buildings. Um, and so that's generally the, the view that of what, the, what caused the fire. But in order to divert suspicion, uh, Nero blamed the Christians and he started persecuting them, which he was able to do. You know, there was sort of um, overreaching power and authority. Uh, if you think we have trouble with that in our country, uh, just you know, check out what it was like in the times of Paul and the Roman Emperor and the Roman Empire. And, and Nero decided, hey, the Christians are to blame here, so let's round them up and start persecuting them and burning them and get, getting rid of them because they're really the ones that caused the fire. 
Now, it's interesting that uh, the Bible makes no mention of Nero's persecution, even though it happened in New Testament times. But, and it is the background of at least uh, two books, and that's um, 1 Peter and 2 Timothy. Now, it was this persecution that led to Paul's execution, and according to tradition, Peter's execution also. Now, one of the Roman historians, Tacitus, um, he indicates that it was well known that the Christians weren't to blame, but somebody had to be made the scapegoat for the emperor's crime. <laughs> oh, sure, we can't blame the emperor, so we've got to find someone. Uh, and so the blame was, was uh, shoveled onto the, the Christians. It was, a, it was convenient that there was this, at the time, uh, regarded as a new sect of people, Followers of Christ, uh, Christians. Now, they mostly came from the humbler or more humble walks of life. Uh, there was many who lacked any real prestige or influence on a, on a wide scale. Uh, many of the early Christians were, were slaves. And so they were an easy target and they were accessible to which Nero pinned the blame to. These people here, these Christians, they are to blame. They are the ones that have caused all the strife. And so around this time, um, multitudes of Christians were arrested, they were rounded up, they were put to death in the most cruel ways. Now, some were crucified. Now, as brutal as crucifixion is, that would probably be their preferred option because of what other ways that were invented to put people to death. Remember, this, these are the days of the, the gladiators. These are the days when the, the arenas would be flowing with blood. Uh, and, and so this was all sort of happening to a degree, but then now we've got all these Christians. Well, let's get rid of them in the same way as well. Some of those ways of being put to death might include being sewn into the, into the skins of dead animals, thrown into the arena... And, and being badgered to death by wild dogs. All for the entertainment of the people. Uh, others were just thrown to, into the beach to be torn apart, gored to death by bulls, or tied to poles covered in tar and set alight to light up Nero's garden at night. The big difference, of course, at this time, was that the government of Rome was bring, bringing Paul back rather than he was arriving in Rome by his own choice. He, he previously had appealed to Caesar, but this time he was being dragged by the Roman authorities back to Rome to face uh, this uh, as an alleged criminal uh, as opposed to that first time where he was on some technical violation of Jewish law. And so this is all that was happening in Paul's life. This is what was the background. Paul was regarded as one of the leaders of, the, of this Christian, uh, this sect, of these groups of Christians. He had been in Rome previously. He would have been known to the authorities. And so, hey, let's get hold of Paul. Uh, you know, he, he's one of the ringleaders. And so while all this was happening, here he is in a Roman dungeon waiting for the time of his execution and here Paul wrote this letter to his trusted and loyal friend Timothy. 
Now, Paul was soon to be executed for a crime he didn't commit. And his friends had abandoned him to suffer alone. And you think, well, it makes the price of eggs not too much of a drama in our lives, is it? But out of all of this comes one of the most noblest passages of Scripture. It's fascinating. He doesn't spend his time ranting on about the government. He doesn't spend time going on about how poorly he's been treated. At this time, one part of the church, and often been referred to as sort of the western regions, was being persecuted from the outside. Uh, some of the other areas, that the eastern part of the church, uh, was being persecuted from within through false teaching. Yet there is no hint of regret from Paul that he had given his life to the service of Christ and the church. There's no hint whatsoever that the church, although going through extremely difficult times, would eventually be triumphant. There's no hint of doubt that at the moment death came, that he would go straight into the presence of God. You see, he had eternal security, absolute assurance. Do you have the same assurance today? Does everyone here have that absolute assurance that if you just passed off today, <laughs> passed away, whatever the circumstances might be, that you would be secure in your eternal state? Because anyone who is truly born again should have no doubt that when that moment arrives, you are secure in that eternal presence of God. And it's all based on his grace. It's a sad thing to see a person claiming to be a follower of Christ, but yet with no eternal security. Think of some people that, that I know that are in that place. They, they have no eternal security. They're not sure. They are fearful. And so... With the, death, with the sentence of death hanging over him, what does Paul say? He starts off in verse 1 of chapter 1 of 2 Timothy. He says this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. And so here he is, he's there, he's got this death sentence hanging on him. Paul starts talking about life. <laughs> he starts talking about life in Christ. He starts talking about eternal life. Jesus said, hey, don't be afraid of those who can kill your body and after that they don't have any further power. And so as Paul is writing with the, the, the sentence of death hanging, hanging over him, knowing his execution is, is only a matter of time, it's interesting how he writes about life. He says, I'm an apostle by the will of God according to the promise of life. Not of death, but of life. And that life is in Christ Jesus. Uh, John tells us, this is the record. God has given to us eternal life, and that life is in his Son. And he who has the Son has life. 
according to the promise of that life that is in Christ Jesus. You know, we can thank God. Even with a sentence of death hanging over us like Paul had, that, that we can actually talk about life. That eternal life. That life we have in Christ. Remember the rich young ruler, he came to Jesus, he fell down there at his feet and he said, Master, what, what good things must I do to inherit this age-abiding life? Because he saw in Jesus Christ the quality of life and he desired it, he, the quality of life that is ours through our faith in Christ. He who has the Son has life. Do you have that life today? Is there anybody here who doesn't have that life? I'm going to invite you in a bit to receive that life that's being spoken of about here for anyone who is not sure about that. But let's continue on. The next couple of verses, look what we read here. Verse 2, To Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears that I may be filled with joy. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. But it starts with an interesting little word here. Uh, that's unique to just three books that Paul wrote. You see this verse along with 1 Timothy and also Titus, it includes uh, an added word. Instead of just grace and peace, which is his normal greeting, he puts in the word mercy. And here he is, he's writing to pastors. <laughs> and he includes only in these pastoral epistles, grace, mercy and peace. Is he showing that ministers need more mercy than everyone else? <laughs> I believe so. Everywhere else he just uses the words grace and peace. I like what um, Charles Spurgeon uh, had to say about this. He said this, Did you ever notice this one thing about Christian ministers, that they need even more mercy than other people? Although everybody needs mercy, ministers need it more than anyone else. And so we do. If we're not faithful, we shall be greater sinners even than our hearers. And it needs much grace for us always to be faithful. And much mercy will be required to cover our shortcomings. So I shall take those three words to myself. Grace, mercy and peace. You may have the other two, grace and peace, but I need mercy more than any of you. So I take it from my Lord's loving hand and I will trust and not be afraid despite my shortcomings and feebleness and blunders and mistakes in the course of my whole ministry. <laughs> I like the way he put that. All I can say, yeah, amen to that and me too. But what made Paul really happy? He was filled with joy when he remembers the genuine faith of Timothy. Remember the faith, or the faithful men like Timothy who were, who were indeed loving, who were serving the Lord. A genuine faith, it means without hypocrisy. 
uh, her hypocrisy, without a false appearance. Uh, the word faith is used a lot, many times. It's not genuine faith, it's a vague reference. And he makes a note, this faith dwelt first in your grandmother and your mother. And so Timothy's faith was due in no small measure. Now he's responsible for his own faith, but there was an influence by his upbringing, the influence of his grandmother and his mother. Of course, particularly applicable to us today, isn't it, being Mother's Day, how many mothers are unaware that they are nurturing a Timothy in your life, in your world, in your family? Don't give up. Just be faithful to display genuine faith. Timothy and his family came from the city of Lystra. <clears throat> and Paul visited this, uh, that, first, uh, that city on his first missionary journey. And Paul and Barnabas, uh, they were there. God used uh, Paul to miraculously heal a crippled man. And of course, this really created a stir. And the people of the city began to praise Paul and Barnabas. They, they thought, hey, the Greek, the gods have come amongst us. They, they had their names that they, they used. and These are the Greek gods. They've come alive, and here they are. And they started, they were you know, worshipping them, and they were about to, to um, uh, sacrifice a bull to them. And Paul was barely able to restrain them from doing so. And says, hey, hey, don't do this, guys. You know, we're just ordinary, ordinary fellows. And soon enemies of the gospel had, had turned the crowd against Paul and so they cast him out of the city and they, and they stoned him and God preserved Paul's life and he carried on. That's all recorded in Acts 14. And then on Paul's second missionary journey, he came again to Lystra and there he met a young man who had come to Christ uh, who was devoted to serving the Lord. And this young man was Timothy. And he is described as having a mother who believed but his father was Greek, and that's, that's in Acts 16. And so Timothy's mother and grandmother were believers, but his father was not, at least not at first anyway. Now in the Roman world, fathers had absolute authority over the family, and since Timothy's father was not a Christian, his home situation, you could say, was less than ideal, although not necessarily terrible. But it was his mother and his grandmother uh, that who encouraged him uh, and led him to Christ, grounded him in the faith. Just a reminder that God wants to use parents and grandparents, mothers and grandmothers to pass on that, uh, <clears throat> that legacy to their children and grandchildren. And so when Paul left Lystra, he took Timothy with him and this began a, a, um, like a mentor-learner relationship uh, that touched the whole world. Now, it wasn't just that he had genuine faith, that this genuine faith was in Timothy's grandmother and mother. It had to be in him also. And Paul said, I am persuaded that this genuine faith is in you also. Children, when they are of that age, 
we use the age of accountability, whatever that is, but it comes a point when they become accountable to God themselves. They must have their own relationship with Christ. Mum and Dad's relationship with God will not bring them eternal life. Now the phrase genuine faith could be translated unhypocritical faith. That is faith that is not an act. Faith that was for real. There is a lot of faith that essentially is religion. It just sort of has an outward coating of something. Uh, but there is nothing within. Is your faith in God, and something we must always ask, is our faith in God an act? Or is it for real? Of course, the whole book of James is about that, isn't it? Having a real faith. And so, having spoken about that and, and sort of be, begun, here comes a, a word that steps it up a gear and moves it into a, a form of application. That great word, therefore. You know, therefore, considering all of this, he says in verse 6, therefore, I remind you, stir up the gift of God, which is in you, through the laying on of my hands. Now think about the context. Think about the times that were going on around him. Christians are being put to death in the most brutal of ways. Timothy was a gifted fellow, a valuable man, uh, indeed for all that, he, that was going on, but it would seem quite understandably, maybe a bit worried about what that was going to look like for him. <coughs> Some have said he was timid. Maybe he was just aware of the environment. But Paul encourages him to be strong and to be bold. These were difficult and hard times. You see, we can think of difficult and hard times that we have. But difficult and hard times for a Christian in this time it was you know, being swept up in this crazy thing that Nero was, was using and, and blaming on anyone who was a Christian. It doesn't matter. If you claim to be a Christian, then fair game. You, you're responsible. We're going to you know, herd you into the arena and put you to death in the most brutal way. Those were the tough times being spoken of here. Paul encourages Timothy to be strong in these days. Going through First and Second Timothy, there's something like 25 different places where Paul encourages Timothy to be bold. God may have gifted a person, but just because someone has certain gifts does not mean they are being used for his glory and kingdom. Many gifts need to be stirred up. This reminds us that God does not work his gifts through us as if we are kind of robots. You know, we, we also have the, the uh, opportunity to, to either be involved or to not be involved. I'm going to get involved in that, turn that off. (laughs) 
You see, he gives a man and woman gifts. And he leaves that element that needs to be the cooperation of your will. A desire, a drive to fulfill the purposes of his gifts. Now some are waiting passively for God to use them, but God is waiting for them to stir up the gifts that are within them. Some are waiting for a dramatic new anointing from God. Maybe God is waiting for them to stir up what he has already given. The idea of stirring up is, is, is the thought is like a fire and to keep it burning bright and strong. And you know what it's like. You know, you, you stick the, uh, the poker in there and rattle it around and stir up and, and, and bring those embers back to life again. Uh, they're there, but they just need stirring up. Uh, there are times that God needs to stir us up that our gifts might be burning and bright. The word you stir up actually means to kindle afresh or, or to keep in full flame. It doesn't suggest that the fire had gone out. It suggests this is stirring up to keep it burning. Mentioned here the, the, the laying on of hands. Uh, this is interesting. It's in a means to communicate spiritual gifts to Timothy. Uh, it's not the only way that God gives gifts, of course, but it is a common way, and, and it means we should never neglect. Have you ever had someone lay hands on you and pray with you? That God would grant you gifts to, to you, be administered through you. You know, there's something about the touch of a person when they pray for you or with you. It can be a point of contact for the releasing of faith. It can be a real and physical moment to sort of symbolise the work of God that is going on within. And we hear, you know, are sensitive and are respectful in this regard, but any laying on of hands that we may do is because there is a genuine belief that there is a significant spiritual element to it. There is something about that, the physical contact. Let me pray for you and put your hand on a person's shoulder. And it's just that connection that, that perhaps is a reminder that it is real. It's not just sort of a, a, a remote or disconnected event. But I would encourage and I would invite all of you to stir up the gifts that you have. And if you would like to pray about this with or without the laying on of hands, uh, we'd love to assist you where we can. We'd love to pray with you that God indeed would stir up the gifts. Uh, that he has placed in you. The church is made up of different parts, like a body, and, and Paul uses that uh, description at times, different parts of the body uh, that make up one body and use the physical body as an example, you know, the eyes, the ears, so on, the hands, but still one body. God brings into any church, any, any fellowship of believers, uh, all of those parts to be used. Uh, for the building up of one another and for the ministry. And so with this thought in mind, Paul continues as he goes into the next verse and he says this, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And so remember the context here. This heavy stuff going on. 
You know, it's, it's, not, it's not easy going. It's very difficult times. And Paul says, God has not given us a spirit of fear. Even though at this time it would be very understandable for people to be fearful. If you were thought to be a Christian, you know, it could be you don't come home tonight. <laughs> you know, suddenly you're swept off into some horrendous event happening down in the arena. We all face situations where we are tempted to fear or to sense fear or to feel fear. The first step in dealing with such fears is to first understand as said here, fear is not from God. There are other things that perhaps are similar. You know, it's right to be cautious at times uh, and exercise caution as opposed to sort of foolhardiness. But, but fear in the context of what Paul is saying, he's saying, hey, well, God has not given us a spirit of fear. We know that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, we, we, so we, there's aspects of fear that, that apply, but not, not in, in the way Paul is touching on here. And so firstly, this fear that you're feeling, is this from God? Well, as Paul speaks here, very clear, he doesn't, he hasn't, God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. We can be invaded by fear, we can live under this cloud of fear. Uh, we can be fearful and, and sort of hiding and, and it, it, fear has this way of, of, of squashing a person down and burying them. Fear of what? And, and fear can sort of grow. And, and, and people who've, who've suffered with all sorts of um, conditions, you know, we would attach to things a bit like depression or so on. Often it is fear that has lock them right down to the point where they can't even get out of bed. They're fearful. We can be fearful of, of strangers. We can be fearful of just sort of stepping out of our house. To be able to say, well, hey, this isn't God making me fearful. Because God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. Perhaps, you know, we have experienced fear. There, there are certain personality types that will be prone to fear more than others. Uh, maybe there's a weakness uh, in, in our flesh in some way that causes us to fear. Uh, maybe it's the enemy really attacking us. And, and we have this tremendous fear. So we need to first recognise, well, hey, this, this isn't really from God. Why am I fearful? Is, is there a legitimate reason that I'm f fearing something? Uh, you know, if, if you're standing in the middle of the road and a 50-ton Kenworth is coming at you, then it's good to be fearful to get off the road. Uh, maybe there's a better word than fear, but you should fear that if that thing hits, hits me, it's, you know, half a day out with the undertaker. Uh, so it's kind of there are aspects to it which you can apply, but in the context of what Paul is saying, fear can overwhelm us and grip us to the point where, where we need to recognise this is not from God. And so the second step with dealing with fear is understanding what God has given us. So let's not just think about what God hasn't given us. He hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but He has given us a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. 
interesting he puts these three together here. There is the element of power when we are doing God's work, when we're in that place of, of following Christ. Uh, there is this, essentially, this, this power that's backing us up to the point that, hey, we're safe in his hands. There's a degree of power there somewhere. It's not like, well, hey, I've got this mighty power of God. I can go zip, zap and do all these you know, fantastic things. No, it, the concept is that power that we have in Christ that we are safe in the hands of one with ultimate power. He has given us a spirit of love. And this tells us a lot about the power that he has given us. Many think of power in terms of how much, well, what that means, what control that might be or what have you. And, and Jesus' power is expressed in how much we can love and serve others. Remember Jesus in the night? on the night before the cross. We read John 13. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Man, that's power, isn't it? He's the creator of the world. He's, he'd given all things into the hands of Jesus. What did Jesus do with that power? He washed his disciples' feet. So it's not the fact of the power, it's, it's what that power, how it affects us and how we use it. Jesus is always the example. God has also given us a sound mind. You know, there's a whole sermon just waiting there on those two words. Uh, mental health. Um, And what that means, the Greek word here has the idea of a a calm, self-controlled mind in contrast to the panic and confusion that rushes in on us us when we are in a fearful situation. You see, when fear strikes, what happens? You know, often you start running around and doing crazy stuff. When a person gets lost in the bush and they find out that they're lost... (laughs) I've been lost a few times, and you're okay until you figure out you are lost. When you come by that and see, hey, there's footprints there, someone's been there before, and you realise it's yours, and you thought you were going that way, you've come around a big circle, you suddenly realise, man, I've got no idea where I am. What happens at that moment? You become fearful. You fear. And often what happens, talk to anyone who's in the rescue parties, when a person becomes lost, they start fearing, and they just start running. And they just burn, burn the gas off, they run, they exhaust themselves and do all sorts of crazy stuff because fear uh, now has taken over their mind. And, and so the sound mind has been put to one side because fear has, has overwhelmed them. But God has given us a sound mind. Not to panic in a situation that might bring us fear. So we don't need to accept what God has not given us, the spirit of fear, but we need to humbly receive and walk in what he has given us, the spirit of power and love and of a sound mind. Therefore, we have another therefore. Taking all these things into account, verse 8, do not be ashamed. 
Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. Well, that's a great one, isn't it? Hey, come and share with me in my sufferings. We talk about having a shared meal. Come and share, you know, my potato salad. <laughs> come and share my, you know, roast sausages or whatever. Well, in my case, come and share my burnt sausages. I always find if I ever bring stuff to a, a shared dinner that I've, cooked, that I've cooked, I always take it more back home again. Uh, no one wants what I cook, so it's always a good way to um, make sure the dogs are going to get something to eat. But the point is here, hey, come and share in my sufferings. Who would say that? Come round to my place and, and share in my sufferings. Paul has just told Timothy about the spirit of power, love and a sound mind. With courage, that is, the, the, you might say, the birthright of every believer in Christ. Now Paul will tell Timothy how to let what God has given him guide his thinking. If Timothy will take the courage God will give, he will not be ashamed of the testimony of Christ. We often fail to understand that it wasn't easy to follow a crucified master. This is what was happening in that day. <coughs> Today we have, in many ways, there's been this sort of sanitising of Jesus. Making it all so safe. But in the day Paul wrote this, it would seem strange indeed to follow a crucified man and to call him saviour. Think of Jesus' teaching. If you want to be great, be the servant of all. Some might say that's an oxymoron. If you want to be great, be a servant of all. Be like a child, like a slave, like the younger, like the least. And the last instead of the first. This is a testimony some would be ashamed of. Say, well, hey, you know, that's crazy. Paul knew that the plan of, of God in, in Jesus Christ seemed foolish to many. He also knew it was the, the living, active power of God to save souls and to transform lives. Paul would not be ashamed of it. And neither should Timothy. And neither should we. If Timothy will take uh, the courage God will give him, he will not be ashamed of, of Paul as his prisoner. Uh, it wasn't easy to support an imprisoned Christian. You might get you know, in prison yourself. Hey, he's obviously one of them. Paul sees himself not as the prisoner of Rome, notice. He says, nor of me, his prisoner. He sees himself as a prisoner of God. So Paul can see God as the, as the Lord of every circumstance. If he is free, he is the Lord's free man. If he is imprisoned, he is the Lord's prisoner. It isn't enough that Paul tells Timothy uh, to not be ashamed of him and his chains. He invites Timothy to share in it. We share in the same way Paul spoke of back in Romans 12. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. We can identify with our sufferings or we, and, and with those who are suffering around the world, with their other brothers and sisters in Christ, through a heart of concern and action wherever we're able. Paul was really suffering 
according to the power of God. The power of God is always there, but it is not always there to remove the difficulty, and sometimes it's really where we fall apart. Sometimes it's there to see us through the difficulty. In one sense, it's absurd. For Paul to talk about the power of God, the power of Rome might seem a lot more real at that point. Talking about the power of God, but there he was under the control, authority and power of Rome who were about to put him to death. But God's power has been certainly shown up through, through history. The Roman Empire is gone. The gospel of Jesus Christ lives on. Paul continues this thought. He says so in verse 9, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, notice, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Saviour Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And so we come to God as a response to his call. He has saved us. He has called us. We didn't initiate the search. It's not like, well, we, we, we find God in that, in that sense. He finds us. We respond to his call. Why did God call us? <laughs> That's the biggest mystery of all. Not according to our works, as Paul says. He didn't call us according to our works. But, check this out, according to his own purpose. It wasn't anything great that we were. It's in, not, nothing great that we've done, but it's because... It fits in his purpose because he wanted to, essentially. We can't say, well, you know, I can't believe he's a Christian. Well, you know, argue with God about that. Uh, you know, God is the one who calls uh, because of his own purpose. God directed his work towards us when we only existed as a fact in God's knowledge. He says grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. That's really getting out there now, isn't it? Time. Before time began. Ever thought about that? When did time begin? <clears throat> when did time begin for you? <laughs> we all have the earliest memory that we can get back to in our lives, but you know, that's, that's chicken feed, isn't it? When did time begin? God's knowledge, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's like a, you might think a, a, as a, a couple, married couple, they plan for a baby before the baby is born. It's, it's a similar way, you know, God, God has planned for us. It's been said, I'm, I'm glad God did it before the foundation of the world because if he would have waited until I'd started living my life, maybe he would have changed his mind. <laughs> you know, maybe uh, he would have never done it. <clears throat> but before the foundation of the world, before time began. And so it opens up another whole uh, raft of, of, of discussion, but hey, let's just take it as it is that God has chosen. If you've been chosen, um, <clears throat> how to know you've been chosen? Well, receive Christ as Lord and Saviour, and you'll find <laughs> that you are. It reminds us that time is something that God created in order to give arrangement to our present world. Time's not essential for God's existence. 
He existed before time was created and will remain when time is ended. Uh, and we live on in eternity with him. You know, time is a dimension that we're stuck with. <clears throat> but God's outside of time. You know, it's hard for us to figure that out, isn't it? Because every day we're, we're confronted by time. You know, the alarm goes off and, oh, is it that time again? You know, everything we do is time. Uh, I look at the clock there and it says, my time's running out for the sermon, you know. But, you know, we're, we're stuck with time all, wherever we go. So how do we understand the concept of no time? I sometimes think of the illustration of, of, of a, uh, you know, the, the Christmas parade. Going up and down the street or up the street and you're standing there on the corner and, and you're hearing the noise and you see the, the float come past and you, you watch it in front of you, then it disappears off and it's in history and the next one comes along. But, you know, if you were hovering above in a helicopter or a balloon or something up above and being able to watch the whole thing, you don't have the same sense of time because you're seeing everything at the beginning. You know, you're seeing the beginning and the end uh, that everyone else is experiencing, but you're seeing it all in the same moment. Uh, and perhaps that's that's a, a bit of a um, clumsy way of, of of thought, but it's sort of outside of time. For a moment there, you're outside of the time uh, where the other people are who are stuck down in that dimension uh, on the street watching. But God is outside that. He, he, he fulfilled the eternal plan of God. Truly, Jesus shows us what God and his plan are all about. He reveal, God's purpose and grace were revealed by the appearing of Jesus Christ. That's why we can never know Jesus too much. If you would know as much as you can about, about God in the, in the heavens, <clears throat> God has revealed himself to us all in the person of Christ. Want to know what God's like? Well, Jesus reveals God. What did he do? Well, as said here, he abolished death. Death isn't death anymore in regard to believers. It's called sleep. Not because we're unconscious, but because you might say it's, it's pleasant and peaceful. <laughs> death does not take anything from the Christian, but rather moves them into glory. The idea of having R.I.P., you know, rest in peace on a, on a Christian's tombstone, doesn't really adequately <clears throat> describe what it's about. Maybe it should be C.A.D. Christ abolished death. But what did Jesus do? Well, he brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The understanding of the afterlife was somewhat. Um, clouded, you could say, through the Old Testament, but Jesus let us know more about it. He spoke about heaven and hell than anyone else could. He created them. And so Jesus brought the truth about the immortal state of life through his own resurrection. He showed us what our own immortal bodies would be like. And he assured us that we would, be, would in fact have them. And these things make Jesus a more reliable spokesman regarding the world beyond than anyone who has had a supposed uh, you know, near-death experience or afterlife experience or whatever. Hey, just read the Bible. What did Jesus say? God's plan of salvation began all that time back in eternity past, before time began. It continued with the appearing of Christ. It came to us when he saved and called us. It continues as we live out that calling. One day it will show itself in immortality, which is eternal life. 
And so when we consider the greatness of this message, no wonder Paul calls it the gospel, he calls it good news. This is good news. There's not much good news around today, but the good news of the gospel hasn't changed. It's good news that God thought of you and and loved you before you even existed. Good news that Jesus came to to show show us God and, and who God is. It's good news that he called us and saved us. Good news that he gives us a holy calling and good news that he shows us and gives us eternal life. All of that is good news. Paul says in the following verse, I was appointed, or to which I was appointed, a preacher, an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason I also suffer these things. This is the reason why he was suffering. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. And so we could almost sense Paul's growing in strength here as, as he writes these words. He understands that it is a privilege indeed to suffer. Flashing through his mind, no doubt, are, are the many messages he spoke. He was a preacher, he was an apostle. He travelled, sharing the gospel wherever he went. He was a teacher of the Gentiles. Surely he must say, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. How could Paul be so bold? Well, he, he so honoured by something others might be ashamed of. Well, certainly it's because he says, I know whom I have believed. You see, Paul knew God. You know, there's an old saying in business. <clears throat> You're not really going to find it in textbooks or the business schools, I'm sure, but it's, it's there. It's not what you know, it's who you know. It's not what you know, it's who you know. And, and anyone who's been around business for a while will, will realise, hey, there's some truth to that. Uh, it's, maybe it's not always good, but it's a reality. But it also applies to our spiritual life. You know, we must know not just what we believe. More important, we know who we believe. When we know how great God is, when God and and his glory becomes the great fact of our lives, it does result in boldness also. Many know what they believe. They can quote chapter and verse for sure, but they don't know who they believe. The story is told... I think it was in an English class somewhere, a university or something similar. Maybe it was a, even a, um, um, <clears throat> a Bible school of some sort. But the idea of this class was, you know, they were touching on this particular day on, on oratory skills and, and how to speak publicly and properly, you know, have, have, a, have, a, have a good command on English and, and to present things just right. And they use for their text Psalm 23. And so the first person comes along, he, he reads Psalm 23. And it was a standing ovation afterwards. And, and when the crowd finally calmed down, the teacher you know, said, man, that was, that was fantastic. Superb skills. You know, just the inflection of the voice and everything was just, you couldn't fault it. Another person came along, 
And he kind of fumbled and stumbled through the words and wasn't so flash. When he finished, there was dead silence. The teacher eventually stood up, clearing his throat and wiping away a tear from his eye. It was all he could do to just say, the first person we listened to knew the subject, but the second one knew the author. Biblical Christianity is not about, relation, is not about just knowing some facts. It's about a relationship with Christ. When you can say that you know, that you know, that you know whom you believe. You see, at the end of the day, Paul, everyone had deserted him. And there he was, <laughs> facing death. And he could say, I know who I believe. Can you say that today? I know who I believe. And because he knew who he believed, he was persuaded that he, the one he believes in, is able to keep what has been committed to him until that day. Paul gave Jesus his life. He knew he was secure. That's what Paul committed to him. In his mind, his life, Paul knew he could not keep his own life. He knew that only God could keep it, and God was well able. And knowing this, both gave, gave Paul both boldness and comfort. And so, with all of this in mind, he, he encourages Timothy, hold fast the pattern of sound words that you've heard, that you've heard from me in faith and love, which is in Christ. That good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Hold fast, is what he says, hold fast those good things. We live in a time where faithfulness is is only expected as it serves our own interests, but when it stops being in our immediate advantage to be faithful, many people just feel fine about giving up their responsibility. Paul is saying, hey, just be faithful. Commit to those things. Hold fast. In the day of difficulty, hold fast. The last phrase of verse 14 Gives us the key to faithfulness, I believe. Keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. See, God requires a faithfulness from us that is greater than we can fully fulfill by our own resources. Unless we are walking in the Spirit and filled with God's Spirit, we cannot keep faithful to what we must keep faithful to. So in conclusion, just want to go back to the, the subject of life where we started off. I said we're given opportunity to receive this life that is spoken of. We're talking about eternal life. Perhaps there is someone here who doesn't know what that is. Or confused about it or unsure. Uh, maybe you've heard the gospel. Maybe you thought that you, know, that you couldn't understand that or you're not quite aware, aware really what that is. Or maybe once you made a commitment uh, in some form but everything has sort of gone black since. You see, Paul was at peace at whatever was to unfold before him because, for one, he knew whom he believed. The one he be who he believed was Jesus. 
Jesus, and secondly, he had absolute assurance of the eternal state in God's presence. If you're unsure of where you stand with God this morning, then as we conclude in worship, and I just ask the worship team to come up and, and um, be, get ready, I would invite you, as we worship, just to bow your heart before God, to quietly call upon him. Jesus said that God loved the world so much that he, he gave his only son, and it's, it's, Timothy, uh, Paul's been mentioning him, his only son, Jesus was revealed. Jesus, as he came, he revealed God. He, he, he established the reason. God, for his own purpose, has called that we might receive eternal life. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So there's the difference. Perish or eternal life. Eternal life is offered to those who will Uh, repent and receive Christ as Lord and Saviour. The Bible declares that God is not willing that anyone should perish, but that we all would be saved. If those verses trouble you, then today I believe God is calling you. I pray that God will minister to you and that the depths of your own heart, wherever you're at, uh, you will cry out to God today. Allow him to speak deeply to you. Respond to the call that he is calling you. Let us pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, that you are a God who doesn't give up. Uh, and here was Paul. He's in prison. He's about to be put to death. He speaks about life. Because he knew the creator of life and he knew the, the, the saviour that provides eternal life. And so death could not bring that to an end, but rather translate him into a place where he experienced eternal life in God's presence. But today, here right now. Lord, I pray that you would speak to each one of us and, and to anyone who has never received the gift of eternal life through Christ. Lord, that you would minister to that person today, right now. Maybe things have been sort of fuzzy or cloudy. Uh, maybe there's been all sorts of drama in the past that have eroded or, or, or just uh, confused the clear and simple call that you place on each of us. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you give clear calling to each one of us. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here, that they would respond this morning. So, Lord, as we just uh, have this time in, in worship and song, Lord, I pray your spirit would work in our lives. Maybe we need to be stirred up in our gifts amongst us. Are the things that we're holding on to that, that need to be used for your glory and for the edification of one another? Maybe we're fearful. Maybe we're struggling with not having a sound mind. Perhaps there's other aspects that we've allowed to implode into our lives that we need to push to one side and, and get back to the main thing. I ask, Lord, that you would work amongst us this morning. Do the work that you, you would desire to do in our lives that we might grow, that we might produce fruit, that we might be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, shall we, and just uh, conclude in worship this morning.